again. thought uh, I might start uh, our time together just by reading you a, a quick little quote from a famous book. Let me read to you. Salih Teabing cleared his throat and declared, The Bible did not arrive by facts from heaven. The Bible is the product of man, not of God. The Bible did not fall magically from the clouds. Man created it as a historical record of tumultuous times, and it's evolved through countless uh, translations, additions, and revisions. History has never had a definitive version of the book. Can we trust the Bible? That's our big question today. Can we trust the Bible? And the answer, obviously, of the Da Vinci Code, uh, best-selling novel, major motion picture, is, well, no, it's a human book. It's unreliable, certainly can't be trusted. I don't know uh, how much you know uh, about the Bible, but it's a pretty unique book. And as a book, it's more like a library, really, because inside the covers of the Bible are some 66 books. 39 of them are written before the birth of Jesus and together are called the Old Testament. 27 of the books were written after the birth of Jesus and are called the New Testament. The Bible was written over a period of some uh, 1,500 years by more than 40 different authors from all sorts of different walks of life over about a period of 40 generations. But the claim of the Bible itself is that although it has human authors, the words they each originally wrote were also the words of God who inspired them, who breathed his word out through them, who carried them along by his spirit. The Bible was written on three continents. It's written in three different languages originally, Hebrew, Aramaic and Greek. It was written from different situations, a wilderness, a palace, a dungeon, a prison on the road. It was written in times of uh, war, times of peace, times of prosperity, times of poverty. It was written from the very heights of joy to the very depths of sorrow. It contains great action stories, historical accounts, poetry, visions, proverbs, love stories, letters, reflections, philosophy, biography. And moving through the 66 books of the Bible is this one story, a unified story. A grand story, beginning with God creating the world with humanity as the centerpiece of his creation, but then tragedy strikes as humanity rejects God's rule with disastrous, catastrophic consequences, and then the story of the Bible follows God's response to human rebellion. It's a story that traces out God's plan to rescue humanity and to re-establish his kingdom. It's a story that spans centuries and continents and empires, and yet it involves individual people and incredible adventure and drama. And the story continues to unfold down through time until finally, incredibly, God himself steps into his creation in the person of Jesus, who comes to reestablish the kingdom of God. Jesus, who's then executed by crucifixion on behalf of his people and is raised from the dead after three days and he promises to return and when he does, to bring in a new creation. And in the meantime, before the, in between those two great events, Jesus sets in train a plan to see the message of Jesus and the message of the kingdom of God taken to all nations. It's a message of judgment and forgiveness, a message of warning and hope. And the story of the Bible ends in the future with the very end of this old order of creation and the coming in of the new. 
It's a grand story that encompasses all people everywhere in every time. The Bible is an amazing book. It's unique. The world's first printed book was a Bible, and as far as I know, the Bible remains the most published and most read book in the world of literature. And because of its significance and because of its popularity and because of its radical content, the Bible has attracted perhaps more scrutiny and more examination and more scepticism and more doubt than any other book. And as one academic puts it, a thousand times over, the death knell of the Bible has been sounded, the funeral procession formed, the inscription cut into the tombstone and the committal read, but somehow the corpse never stays put. It's a nice way of expressing it, I reckon. Because don't think for a moment, will you, that the Da Vinci Code was the first attack on the Bible or, or even the most serious one. The Bible has been scrutinised and examined and attacked a thousand times over and yet has survived. And I would say thrived. How could that be? Why would that be? Can we trust the Bible? That's our big question today. You know, one thing that uh, people notice when they come along to church here is how seriously we seem to treat the Bible. Um, you might have noticed already at least half of our meeting on, uh, on Sundays is given to either reading or teaching or reflecting on the Bible. Most of us who are part of this church meet with others during the week to read and reflect on the Bible together. Not only that, we read the Bible as individuals during the week and we, and we try and order and arrange our lives and our thinking and our planning according to what we read there in the Bible. And that's, that's surprising to lots of people. Because lots of people assume that the Bible is scientifically impossible, historically unreliable, and culturally irrelevant, and practically useless. But you know what, I would, I would disagree very strongly with that. Because it's been my experience that to read the Bible seriously actually unlocks life to the full. It unlocks life to the full. And so I, I guess I want to begin a, at least begin a conversation with you this morning about the trustworthiness of the Bible. And if you have a look at your outline, which is on the inside of the bulletin there, you can sort of see where we're going. It looks worse than it is, I've got to tell you. And uh, I just want us to consider next, really, one reason to trust the Bible is because of the evidence. We're going to move pretty quickly. Uh, it might surprise you, but there is actually compelling evidence, historical evidence, for trusting the Bible. But as I say, I'm going to move fairly quickly. I haven't got time to go into everything. And if this is something you'd like to pursue some more, I'd be glad to talk some more later. But when it comes to the factual reliability of the Bible, it's actually, because it's such a big book, it's actually help us, helpful to focus on the person of Jesus. Because it's a bit like a house of cards, really. If you can show that the Bible account of Jesus is unreliable, then everything else sort of crumbles. So we're going to focus on Jesus. Can we trust the Bible's account of Jesus? Da Vinci Code would say no, but what would the evidence say? Well, let me, let me say firstly that all serious scholars of history, Christian or otherwise, okay, all serious scholars believe that, that Jesus existed. There's just too much evidence, both inside and outside of the Bible. Outside of the Bible, for example, there are several references to Jesus uh, from writings 
in the ancient world at the time. Let me just do real quickly a Roman historian named Tacitus, another Roman named Suetonius, a Jewish historian called Josephus. There are other Jewish writings. There's a letter from the governor of Bithynia at the time who's writing back to Rome. There are Greek writers. All of these guys make reference to Jesus and none of them are sympathetic to him. None of them are sympathetic to Christianity, but they all make reference to Jesus. And what we discover about Jesus just from all these writings outside of the Bible is entirely consistent with what we discover in the Bible. Of course, when we turn to the Bible, there's a whole lot more detail there in the New Testament, the back half of the Bible, in what are called the Gospels of Jesus. So in the Bible, there are four biographies of Jesus that are called Gospels. But can we trust what they say? Surely there must have been some sort of conspiracy, you know, to build up a picture of Jesus that, was, that wasn't true, some sort of myth, a fairy tale. Well, again, the short answer to those sort of questions is the overwhelming opinion of professional historians, not necessarily Christians, professional historians, their overwhelming opinion is that the Gospels of Jesus and the books of the New Testament are very, very historically sound. They are reliable, trustworthy sources. Let me, let me expand on that just a little to try and combat some of the lies that go around about these things. Firstly, let me say the Gospels of Jesus in the Bible were written so close to the events that they were describing that they are early enough in time to be very trustworthy. They were all written within 40 to 60 years of Jesus' death uh, and his resurrection. The rest of the New Testament was written by about 100 AD. Historically speaking, that is incredibly close in time to the actual events, practically guaranteeing the accuracy, really. Just by the way, on the way through, in case you've heard of some other Gospels, um, sometimes called the Gnostic Gospels, uh, the Gospel of Thomas or Philip or Mary, they get a good airing in the Da Vinci Code, for example. Um, but they were written about two to 300 years after Jesus, way later, and they are no comparison with the genuine Gospels that we have in the Bible. Not only that... But the original Gospels and the letters in the New Testament were copied to pass around because people thought they were so important. And many, many of those copies have been discovered by archaeologists and they can be compared to each other so as to check for error and to make sure that what's written in our Bibles is accurate. That's just normal historical method. Let me give you an example. Uh, there's a very uh, important ancient work from the first century called The Jewish War by an historian, a Jewish historian named Josephus. Uh, there are only nine complete manuscripts of that book uh, in existence, and the oldest is from the 5th century, 400 years later, and it's written in Latin, which is not what Josephus wrote in. But historians are very confident about its accuracy, even though there's this 400-year gap between the original and the oldest copy. And there are only a few. When it comes uh, to the New Testament, though, um, there are some 24,000 manuscripts, some of which date uh, to within 40 years of the original. Okay? Now, that's a staggering comparison. Can we trust that the accounts of Jesus in the Bible are historically reliable? Well, definitely. The evidence is, in fact, overwhelming. And so a fellow by the name of Sir Frederick Kenyon, who's a former director and principal librarian of the British Museum, he wrote these words. He wrote, The interval then 
between the dates of the original composition and the earliest existing evidence becomes so small as to be in fact negligible and the last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down to us substantially as they were written has now been removed. Both the authenticity and the general integrity of the books of the New Testament may be regarded as finally established. The Gospels and the New Testament are way uh, accurate enough, early enough, to be trusted. Not only that, but I want to suggest to they're embarrassing enough to be trusted as well. They're embarrassing enough to be trusted as well. What do I mean by that? Well, simply that there's lots of stuff in the Gospels that are really embarrassing to those who first wrote them. And if the stories were made up, if they were invented, the authors wouldn't have put them in. For example, lots and lots of times, if, if you read any of the Gospel accounts, you'll see that the, the disciples of Jesus are often portrayed as jealous or foolish or scared or just plain dumb, really. These were the guys who became the leaders of the early church in the first century when the Gospels were written. So you've got to ask, why would they include so many details of their weaknesses and their failures, which were so embarrassing to them, unless they were committed to writing the truth. Because if they were making all that stuff up, they would have left it out. It was too embarrassing. It would have undermined their authority, but it's in there. It's embarrassing enough to be true. One more example. The most controversial claim in the Gospels, the most controversial, outrageous claim, really, is that Jesus rose from the dead after three days. It's controversial now. It was just as incredible and controversial back then in the first century. Dead people don't rise again. Now, the key evidence for the resurrection of Jesus was that the tomb in which his body was laid was empty after three days. That was the key piece of evidence, an empty tomb. Now, when you read the gospel accounts, who do you reckon discovered the empty tomb? Who were the witnesses to the empty tomb? Well, they were women, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and other women. They found the empty tomb and they reported it. it was on the basis of their uh, uh, eyewitness account that it was reported. Now, you might say, well, so what? What's the big deal? But in the first century, okay, in the first century, women were not accepted as legal witnesses. They were thought of as unreliable. Can you believe it? <laughs> I certainly don't. <laughs> women were thought of as unreliable, okay. It's, a, it's an appalling truth. They were not they were not accepted as legal witnesses. But here's the thing, okay? If you were way back then and you were making up a story about Jesus rising from the dead, or if you were trying to make a story more believable because it was just too incredible and too controversial, and it was the key thing of your first message, you know what? The very last people you would put forward as witnesses would be women. That would be stupid. That would be absolutely crazy. You'd be shooting yourself in the foot straight away. But in the Gospels, in the Bible in really a great affirmation, okay, of the trustworthiness of women, it's the women who are the important witnesses. They're the, they're the star witness. It's totally embarrassing, okay, in a first century context. Laughable, really, except if you're committed to telling the truth. It's so embarrassing, okay, it has the ring of truth about it. Can we trust the Bible? Well, I'm suggesting the gospel accounts are early enough to be trusted, they're embarrassing enough to be trusted, and as well as that, there is enough agreement and disagreement to be trusted as well. 
Let me, let me try and explain what I mean. If we were all witnesses to uh, some event, let's say all of a sudden there's this massive great noise and a helicopter lands out there on the oval there, okay? And someone comes along and says, look, it's so incredible. Can you all just write down what you saw uh, happen? Can you write down what happened? What we'd expect if we compared all of our statements would be, if, and if they were true, we, what we'd expect would be lots of agreement about the big details and some differences in minor details and some differences in just the things we noticed. Some of us might have noticed the colour of the helicopter or the way the air moved or the sound. Others might not. You know what? That's exactly what we find in the Gospels. All four Gospels have remarkable agreement about major events and teachings. They all basically tell the same story about Jesus, have lots of stuff in common. However, they also have minor differences in what they report as well. And both of those things are really important historical indicators that they're trustworthy. Because if there, were, if there were major disagreements, okay, you wouldn't know which was true and which was false. But if it was completely agreed on every single point, it would look like it was cooked up. It would be a conspiracy. But the combination of agreement and disagreement is a powerful indicator of the trustworthiness, the reliability of the gospel accounts. Early enough, embarrassing enough, enough agreement and disagreement. Look, I'm not joking, in all seriousness, there is so much more that I could say about the evidence for the trustworthiness of the Gospels in the New Testament. So much more. I'd love to talk about some more if you'd like. But professional historians, regardless of their religious beliefs, they treat the New Testament far more seriously than most people realise. There are literally thousands of scholars in some of the most prestigious universities around the world who devote their time to this stuff. All they study is the New Testament. Historians, professional historians. They constantly publish their findings in about 100 academic journals that are dedicated to this subject. And I know there's lots of sensation and publicity around things like the Da Vinci Code and, you know, the next documentary that will come on the ABC and that sort of stuff. But let me tell you, those fads, they come and they go, they end up in the second-hand bookshop, in the DVD bargain bin, but the evidence in support of the reliability of the Bible, I've got to tell you, it just keeps growing. But let me, let me address just one more question before we move on, that's the question of bias. Because sometimes people say, well, okay, but aren't the accounts of Jesus in the Bible biased? And the answer is, well, of course they are. Of, of course they're biased. The whole reason that the early followers of Jesus took the time to write about what he did and what he said was because they believed the information about Jesus was so important that everyone, everywhere, needed to hear it. They were biased in the sense that they believed it. But that doesn't necessarily mean they were liars. I mean, all of us carry a bias or a point of view. The question is whether that bias leads you to distort the truth. So have a look again at that bit of the Bible that uh, Cassie read to us earlier on the other side of the inside of the bulletin. It's actually the very beginning of one of the biographies of Jesus found in the Bible. It's by a Greek doctor named Luke. And uh, you can actually take a copy of the biography home for yourself today to read it, to check it out for yourself. There are some free copies down the front. I'll mention that again at the end. But did you notice when it was read for us earlier, or can you see it there, how Luke described what he wrote. I'll put it on the screen if you, if you can't see it in front of you now. This is what Luke wrote. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. I want you to notice just quickly, Luke is straight up here, okay? He's straight up in admitting that he himself was not an eyewitness to the events he's, he's recorded, 
but his account is based on eyewitnesses. He was a historian, in other words. He was an investigator. He goes on. Therefore, he said, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. Luke's a believer. He admits that straight up. And he wants this guy, Theophilus, to know for certain what has happened. He wants him and everyone everywhere who reads his biography to know the truth about Jesus. Because you know what? Luke believed that in Jesus, can you see the word? He believed in Jesus there was fulfillment. Remember before I said about the great story of the Bible, the story of God rescuing a rebellious creation, the story of God re-establishing his kingdom, the story of God making a way for people, rebellious people, to have a place in that future new creation. Luke believed that that story had found its climax, had found its fulfillment in Jesus, in his birth, in his life, in his teaching, in his death, and in his resurrection. And Luke believed that if people could understand the truth about Jesus and the significance of Jesus, if they could know the certainty of those things, then that truth could unlock genuine life. And so he wrote his orderly, carefully investigated account. Another one of Jesus' biographers, a fellow by the name of John, he wrote at the, end of, at the end of his biography these words. He wrote, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Check that last sentence, that last phrase, life in his name. That's the promise of the Gospels. That's the promise of the Bible. It offers life in the name of Jesus to those who believe that Jesus is the Christ, which means the King, the Son of God, and who respond rightly to that news. Now, folks, I know I've spent a lot of time on the evidence as a reason for trusting the Bible. It's partly because it's the evidence which is so frequently uh, attacked Uh, And partly because there's just so much to point you towards. And I hope I haven't bored you too much. I really have lost, left heaps out. But you know what? It's really that promise up there on the screen behind me. It's really that promise of genuine life that I want to turn to next. I'm not going to spend nearly as much time on it as the evidence. But actually, that's the most important. Because the second reason, okay, I want to suggest to you for trusting the Bible is that it makes sense. The message of the Bible actually makes sense of life. It makes sense of this world. It makes sense of me. I mentioned before that people who come along to church here for the first time, they're often surprised that, hey, you guys take the Bible so seriously. That's true. The other thing that people are surprised about is that when they hear the Bible read aloud and when they hear it taught and talked about, they discover it's not as weird as they were expecting. And they're often surprised that it it makes sense. It's often the phrase they use, you know, it, it made sense. They come along to church thinking everything's going to be weird and confusing. And when it makes sense, that's a surprise. Let me tell you, the Bible has incredible, profound, practical wisdom about life in this world that makes sense, about love and fulfillment and suffering and contentment and work and parenting and careers and justice and relationships and evil and hope and, well, everything, really. And as you read the Bible genuinely and humbly, It is such a powerful and profoundly helpful book. It actually reveals the truth about God and about this world and about us in this world, and it does so in a way that makes sense. You know, 
Many, many, many years ago, I got my first pair of glasses. I was about 12 years old, so it's about eight years ago. <laughs> sort of. I'm not reliable, the Bible is. Um, 12 years ago, that's about, well, that's a long time ago. But you know what? I can still remember with vivid clarity coming out of OPSM in Caring Bar in Sydney and walking out of that shop and suddenly being able to see so much that I couldn't see before. It was incredible. I suddenly realised I was supposed to be able to see these things. I never realised I could, that I was supposed to. I can remember the signs on the shops opposite, on the other side of the road, that I could now read, could never read them before, didn't know you were supposed to be able to. And what really stands out in my mind, can even think of it right now, is the clarity with which I could see the leaves on the trees outside the shop. They were so sharp and detailed. I'd never been able to see that before. Didn't know you could. It was amazing. It was helpful. It was good. And friends, you know what? Reading the Bible is like putting on a pair of glasses. It actually allows you to see the world and life in the world with a clarity and a sharpness that is amazingly helpful and good. actually reveals in sharp clarity the truth about God and how you can be restored to God and how you can enjoy life to the full. And look, I know if you have not read the Bible much for yourself, I can't convince you of that here and now. But I'm just saying for me, one of the biggest reasons for trusting the Bible is that it makes sense and it makes a difference. And to me, you know, that's a reason to try reading the Bible. I want to be careful about making generalisations, but um, most people I've talked to who think that there's something dodgy about the Bible, they actually, when I ask them, they haven't read much of it at all. I don't know whether you fall into that category, but there are lots of people who just dismiss the Bible as dumb or untrue or outdated, and they've never actually read it. I'm not, saying, I'm not talking about they've never read it cover to cover. I'm talking about they've never read it, any of it. They've got some vague memory of Sunday school or school scripture, but as a thinking adult, they've never actually opened a Bible and read any of it, and yet they confidently dismiss it. That's like saying, you know, that you hate potatoes when you've never tried them, and we parents hate that when that happens, isn't it? (laughs) I hate potatoes. You've never tried them. Except, you know what? The stakes are so much higher when it comes to the Bible. If anything I've said is true, the stakes are so much higher when it comes to the Bible. Because the Bible makes some massive claims about life and death and eternity and fulfilment and purpose and meaning. And I reckon you'd want to be pretty confident before you just chuck it away. Now, I'm not sure what you think about the Bible, but I'm hopeful, okay, that I might have given you enough today to persuade you to at least have a crack at reading some of it yourself. Put it to the test. And I want to suggest that a great starting point is one of these Gospels of Jesus. I said before with Al, when I first got my Bible, I started from the very first page, which is how you normally read a Bible, but I'm suggest, a book, sorry, but I'm suggesting a great starting point with one of these Gospels of Jesus. It doesn't look like a Bible, but trust me, it is. It's just one bit of the Bible taken out and made into a simple book that you can carry around. It's one of the Gospels of Jesus, the one we've got a quote from there that we've been thinking about. It's a great starting point. If you're not much of a reader then you can see on your bulletin there's some information about how you can download an audio copy, an MP3 file, and you can have someone read it to you. I'd also recommend, you know, though, that you might think about signing up to one of our courses that we run that uh, help you investigate Jesus and the Bible. And you can do that down the front here. There's something fun and helpful about doing that with other people. And we, we do that lots of times, and it's, it's always helpful. There's no pressure. We're just trying to be helpful, Okay. But you know what, I began uh, with the fictitious character from the Da Vinci Code, 
who was arguing that the Bible is a book you can be very suspicious of. Um, I want to close, though, just quickly with a true story of a real man who thought the Bible, who was convinced, entirely convinced, that the Bible was trustworthy. Uh, William Tyndale was an Englishman who lived in the early 1500s, a long time ago. He lived in a time, you know, in which there was no Bible written in English. Ordinary people like you and me, we had no Bible. In fact, it was thought that ordinary people like you and me shouldn't have a Bible in your own language. But Tyndale, he was convinced that being able to read the Bible, (coughs) that without being able to read the Bible, sorry, he was convinced that people would not have the opportunity to come to know the truth about God and the truth about how someone can be restored to God through the saving work of Jesus. And so by the time he was 30 years of age, Tyndale had committed himself to translating the Bible from the original languages into the English of the common people. In his own words, he said he wanted the boy who pushed the plough in the fields to know more of the Bible than even the Pope. But in that time, there was great opposition to Tyndale from the king, the king of England, and even from the religious authorities of the day. Isn't that crazy? And so William Tyndale lived as a fugitive in constant danger. He had to leave England in exile while he tried to finish his work of bringing the Bible to his own people in their own language so they could read it for themselves. And within 12 years of that first decision, Tyndale, the age of 42, two years younger than me or so, he was dead. He was executed, tied to a stake, strangled to death, his body burnt. And his final words are recorded as, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. In other words, Lord, I want you to open the eyes of the King to just how great and helpful the Bible really is. 42, was that a wasted life? Tyndale didn't think so, because he knew he was entirely convinced that the message of the Bible was so important and so trustworthy, it was literally worth dying for. And I'm hoping in the spirit of Tyndale that you might pick one up, pick a Bible up, pick one of these Gospels up perhaps, and have a go at reading some of it for yourself. Test it out. See what you reckon. Thanks.